Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine and here on The Profile today where we sit down with a different Christian every week to find out about their life story. I'm really pleased to say I am joined by Claude Jackson. Claude is an ex-drug dealer turned trainee vicar. He's got a new book out right now uh, with SPCK. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Claude's story today on the show. If you want to find out more details, though, about Claude's story, I do encourage you to check out the book in full. And it's called From Guns to God. Claude, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm talking to you right now from South London, and uh, I understand you grew up in South London. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about family life? What was life like for you growing up? Sure. Um, I was born in South London Hospital in Clapham, which is closed now, and raised in Tooting. Um, The stomping ground, so to speak, would have been Streatham, uh, Brixton, Croydon, the surrounding areas of Tooting. And um, uh, it was a busy household. There was uh, six children, myself and five others, four of which are boys. I'm the youngest. And um, my dad was from Jamaica. My mother was uh, from Campbellwell. So we had a diverse background and it was turbulent to say the least. There was a, a bit of domestic violence a lot of domestic violence um, and everything was go, go, go. There was a lot of hustle and bustle in the house on a daily, on a daily basis. That's not an easy childhood, especially you mentioned domestic violence. What sort of impact did that have on you growing up as a, as a young boy and then later as a teenager? It was a lot of trauma early on in life and it set the tone for my later years. So, for example, I was in my mid-twenties when I learned that anger and aggression are two different things. Um, so up until then, more often than not, if I got angry, I'd get aggressive. And if somebody disagreed with me or I had a fallout, it would often end in violence, especially considering the career choice I was in at the time. So I lived a very violent um, early life inside the house and outside so my home life wasn't home wasn't home it wasn't a safe place for me um I didn't feel safe at home and the only time I really got much recognition from my father was when I remember I'd be in school and if I had a fight in school when I went home or if my parents were informed about it from the school my dad would say but what did you do and, you know, I'd have to say what, what, what took place. And if I didn't have the last blow or, or the land more punches, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be impressed. But if I, if I got the upper hand in the fight, I would be championed. Um, and that's basically the foundation what was installed in me from a very early age. You mentioned their career choices. So what did that look like as a, as a sort of teenager? What were you aspiring to and what did you end up doing for work? Most of my siblings had been in trouble with the law. Um, my eldest sibling 
left home at an early age and very quickly, very much so became a drug dealer by trade. So whenever he would revisit the family home, he would come home with stories um, of treasures and adventures that he'd been on. And at that point, we weren't really allowed to play out. We wasn't allowed out often. So I put a lot of my value and dreams into what my eldest brother would tell me. So from a very early age in primary school, I had quickly become outcast or cast out from school life. Um, I was often made to sit in a hall or a corridor because, I, again, I was in a lot of trouble. If it wasn't violence, it was because I was being the class clown. And um, I very quickly, early on in life, decided that uh, academic pursuit wasn't something that suited me. And therefore, by any means necessary, I was going to do what I had to do in life. And in terms of your own sort of family background, you know, were you, was your family well off or, or not? And, and how did that influence kind of how you thought about money and getting by and, and making a career? Yeah, it's really interesting because... I didn't realise at the time, but we were fairly poor, um, which is quite ironic, actually, because my mother would often buy me as much gifts as she could afford. And I didn't realise till I got older, but she said it was basically to try to distract me from the lifestyle, what was I was being raised in, my surroundings. So my mother would, would shower me with gifts that she couldn't afford. She'd save and scrape every penny she could. But um, yeah, we lived, we lived quite a poverish life. Um, there wasn't any luxuries in the house, so to speak. But at a time, you don't know any better. So you make do with what you've got. Yeah. But my mum my definitely went without to provide. My dad too, but my mum was the sacrificial lamb. She definitely put herself last to provide for her children. So it sounds like then from an early age, you mentioned your, your siblings and what they were getting up to. It sounds like you were quite influenced by what they were doing. Um, did, that, did that then lead you in, into that sort of world of, of drugs yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My whole influence came from my eldest brother. He was my window to the outside. Uh, and uh, there's a number of years, roughly 15 years between him and I. So he was living a very fast life when I was still a child. He ended up in uh, Feltham Young Offenders where I would go along with my mother to visit him. And I would only go, my mother would only take me because we didn't, we didn't have a babysitter. My dad was a carpenter. He would work six days a week. And as soon as we were old enough, we'd go to work with my dad. So while my mum would be visiting my oldest brother in Feltham, my other siblings would be at work with my dad. So I went along. Um, I was no older than around seven, seven or eight, six, seven or eight, that sort of age. And uh, I remember the first visit when I saw my brother. I remember it's like seeing your superhero, you know, encaged. And um, I left the visit and I, I quickly turned away. He kissed me on my forehead. And I quickly turned away and I didn't look back because I was crying and I didn't want him to think I was weak as I walked away. 
And that's the sort of, I feel a little bit emotional now because that's the sort of emotion it evoked in me. As a child, you know, I was only, I was only six, seven, eight years old, but I was already being conditioned that like, you don't cry, you don't show weakness, you know? And I had to walk away. And I remember when my mother and I got into the corridor at Felton, um, my mum hid her face in the corner of the room as she cried. And, you know, people were walking past and people were looking. And it was such a surreal moment for me. It was difficult. But yeah, um, my brother was, my eldest brother was my whole outside influence. He was the window. And because I see him coming home, when he did visit, like I said, he moved out at an early age, but when he did visit, he'd come back with all sorts of stories and treasures and gold, literally, you know, and cars and stuff he did. And I remember he always had the newest uh, Nike Airs on. And, you know, we, wasn't, we, we were doing okay. My mother would provide with what she could. And I often got the pick of the bunch because I was the last child. So um, she looked after me. But um, my brother would have the most expensive trainers on it. I just remember thinking, man, like, I just got to be like that when I grow up. I just got to be like that. Um, so he was very influent on my life, yeah. Yeah. And, and is, that, is that what happened for you? Did you go on to, to be successful and to have what you wanted, which was the, the money and uh, the nice trainers? Um, funnily enough, I, I pursued... For a while, I wrestled with the options... And it, by the time I was in my early teens, I never ever readopted school life. And by the time I was in my early teens, I was completely dejected or rejected or departed from any academic pursuit. So I began selling cigarettes in school. Cigarettes was the gateway. Um, and by the time I was, I think, 15, I was selling cannabis and um, that went on till I was 32. Um, by the time I was a teenager, like I said, I was selling cannabis at, at my early teens. My late teens, I was selling cocaine and cannabis. And by the time I was 25, I had access to any drug I wanted. I sold heroin, I sold brown. Again, it was all on the menu, so I sold everything um shamefully it's not something i'm proud of it's just my truth which i'm sharing but yeah um from 15 to 32 was a life filled with uh bad decisions would you um and would you use use those drugs yourself um or was it just selling them on to other people um i Smoked cannabis into my early 20s. Um, and I never used the other drugs because sadly, I see a lot of damage what they've done to people who took them, including some of my family members. And I was, um, which is quite ironic and hypocritical. I was always scared of what, what the damage they could do. So, you know, it was all right selling them. Uh, but I wouldn't dare take them. Yeah. And then in my early 20s, I realized I was, it was more profitable to stop smoking and I stopped smoking cannabis and I haven't smoked uh, anything ever since. Yeah. 
it's, it's interesting isn't it again with the benefit of hindsight you look back and you sort of you see the contradiction in um yourself thinking these things are bad i won't take them but still being comfortable saying them did you do you think you kind of wrestle with that at the time or do you think that just it, it just didn't factor into your thinking you know looking back you think well why why did i do it was it kind of out of necessity of just that was the only way you could make money at the time or or you know were you aware of that kind of moral struggle was it or was it just not on your radar uh great question sam i think initially the cannabis came around you know i was down the park with mates and i i discovered the formula quickly as to how i could get my portion of cannabis for free um and it it's at that point i wasn't thinking about the moral standards um and then all of a sudden, you never think that, you know, you're down the park sitting on a swing having, having a spliff, you, that it's going to turn into, uh, you know, a hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds business almost 20 years later. Yeah. Um, and by the time I became an adult, in my, I'd say in my mid-20s, let's say, which was almost the peak of my financial career, I was far too... Uh, mate, the, the wealth, the cars, the lifestyle. Uh, frankly speaking, I couldn't care less at that point about other people's because I was the, obviously this is pre Christianity, this is BC. So um, I, I thought if there's a God, you know, what's the point to life sort of thing? Yeah. But never had any understanding of Jesus. So at that point, I honestly had convinced myself it's a dog-eat-dog dog world and I'm here to make as much as I can while I can, by any means I can. Yeah. And and as you said, it was a fairly you know, long period of, of your life where you're involved in, in selling drugs. What were your encounters with the law and the police um, during that time? Yeah. Um, I got arrested when I was around about 19. Um, and I got arrested and they gave me my scales back and, um, kept my cannabis and gave me a warning, which was a bit bizarre to me because I hadn't had, um, I didn't realize what was going on there. I didn't realize. And, uh, I got arrested on a couple of occasions, one of which I was with somebody and there was a lot of drugs in my vehicle. Um, and it was a bit of a deal I was doing or I was involved in. It wasn't my deal directly, but I was involved in it. We got pulled over. The drugs got found. The chap I was with had a warrant out for his arrest. I spent the night in the cells. Um, it was the maximum amount of time you're allowed to be kept about pressing charges at the time. Uh, I think it was around about 30 hours. I can't quite remember. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's so strange because that night I was in the cell, you know, I got on my hands and knees and I just prayed that like, because initially I'd pray when I was in trouble. I didn't really know what prayer was, but, you know, your back's against the wall. Oh, God, the car's broke down. Help me. So when you're locked in a cell and you you know a large quantity of drugs have been found, I started praying, and the next morning I got woke up, and um, 
you know, I'd been interviewed and they said to me, you know, well, they came in and said, well, it looks like you're going home. And the, the police officer whom already arrested me told me I was going straight to court Monday morning. They kept me for the weekend. And I said, what do you mean I'm going home? And they said, the chap you're with has took ownership of all of the drugs in the vehicle. He went on to get, I think it was maybe five and a half years. And um, I don't really know why he did that. I don't really know if my prayers were answered. I don't have the theological explanation as to what took place in the cell that time. But I had had encounters with the law um, and I'd never been charged with anything. The fact that you sort of turned to prayer in that moment is quite interesting. I didn't ask... Was, you know, was there anything in your family background or childhood to do with faith at all growing up? Because um, I guess, you know, to get down on your knees and pray in a cell suggests you might have had some brushes with Christianity in the past. You'd even think to do that. So my dad, being from Jamaica, had somewhat of a conflicting faith. Once every few months, my dad would get the Bible out, demand that we all sit around um, the dinner table and he'd read Psalm 23. Right. And, you know, and uh, every day we were made to say grace, but then we wouldn't hear nothing more of it. Or six months later, my dad would all decide that we're going to go to a Pentecostal service in Birmingham. Bearing in mind, we lived in Tooting and then we drive, the whole car would be packed. It was like Noah's Ark. We were sat everywhere in the vehicle and we drive to Birmingham for three hours and then that would happen and then we'd never go back again. So we had this really on off promiscuous relationship with this thing called faith and religion and it was inconsistent um and then again we wouldn't hear of anything for the next few years and then all of a sudden my dad would say right we're all gonna pray and he was very much involved in all sorts of little um regimes like because of his Jamaican faith and they have a lot of sort of beliefs but it wasn't something the baton wasn't handed over to us. And I'm the only one in my immediate family um, that have any, has any faith. So um, I believed, like I remember being a child asking my mother if there was a God and if so, who, you know, what is he? She said it was a chap that lived in the sky. And uh, that was as far as it went, Sam. Looking back at your story, what would you say was the kind of low, the lowest, po- the lowest point or the lowest moment before your life started to change and transform? You know, was there a moment looking back, you think, wow, things have got really, really bad at that point? Um, uh, there was a lot of awful moments. If I can just share a couple with you, just to give you an idea, because over the 20 year span, actually 17 years, you, I saw a lot of awful inhumane things so my social circle i knew the rapist i knew the raped i knew the killed i knew the murdered i knew the murderer you know these were people in my everyday circle so when you're living that life and you're desensitized to it it may sound unimaginable but it was normal to me but i knew i was in trouble when i just bought a brand new bmw out of the showroom. I ordered it, paid a bit. It came, I paid a bit more. And it was a brand new one series white BMW. And I had already had a convertible Audi at home. And I drove that car out and I was so empty, mate. 
I used to buy cars and shop in Harrods just because they call you Mr. Jackson, just because they call you by your surname. And uh, I didn't receive that experience anywhere else. And I bought this new white BMW and they make such a fuss of you. And it's, you know, at the time, I think it was a 40 grand car, 38 grand. And I drove out of the showroom and I drove down the high street. And I was just, I remember thinking, right, what am I going to do with it now? And the buzz didn't even last. Like previously when I bought cars, I've had made so many vehicles, Mercedes, like I said, BMWs. Range Rover, I've driven so many vehicles and you normally get a bug, like it's normally lasts a bit longer, but to have bought the brand new white BMW, leave the showroom and literally just think, right, um, what's the plan for the rest of the day? I knew money was no longer my motivation. And I'm, I, 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 that was a big, it really, it was a slap. It was a reality check. I mentioned at the beginning the the book's called Guns to God, and we we haven't spoken much about, I guess, some of the violence that you witnessed and were involved in. So tell me a little bit about why why that's the title of the book and and that element of your story as well. Sure. Um, I I titled the book Guns to God because they were the two momentous moments, life-shaping moments I had. Um, like I said about my eldest brother coming home with these stories and adventures, he once came home uh, or visited, I should say, and he got my, myself and the rest of my siblings into the back room of the house. And I remember seeing everyone gather together in a huddle sort of thing. And I went over and I forced my way in, you know, and uh, my, my brother had a black, what I believe was a nine millimeter and uh, I just remember seeing, uh, that was the first time I saw a gun. And other than the television, I'd never seen one before. And uh, they handed it around one by one. Everybody like took it and they looked at it and held it and passed it along. And then I reached forwards and one of my brothers intercepted and took it. And I complained in protest that I wanted to turn to look at it. And my eldest brother said, yeah, let him hold it. And I held it. And I remember thinking the weight of a handgun, yeah? You'd be so surprised at how heavy they are. To go off track, all of these films you see of people holding these guns, it's nonsense. They're too, you couldn't ever do that. Anyway, and secondly, I remember the, the cold, the temperature of the gun, the cold steel, this really weighty, cold object, even though I was only six or seven at the time, it, you knew it was built to destroy. You just knew, you could just feel it. And that was why I named the, the book Guns to God, because that was one of the biggest, most impactful moments, life-shaping moments. And the other was when I encountered Jesus so tell me um, a bit about that moment. I understand you became a Christian through Alpha. Um, so presumably the start of your sort of faith journey involved, what, someone inviting you to Alpha? Was that was that the way it happened? And obviously you had to be interested enough to turn up to go on a course about God and Christianity. So tell me a bit about how all that happened. Well, we're going to be hearing exactly what happened to transform Claude's life coming up right after this. These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. 
you could get a pack of balloons. A DIY face mask. Oh! Or some plasters. Ouch! Or one pound could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews, and loads of Christian news articles, all in Premier Christianity. In print, online, and on the app for just one pound a month in the summer sale limited offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com. Tell me a bit about how all that happened. Sure. Um, so at the time I was volunteering as a mentor for the council, mentoring young offenders on reparation for those who might not be aware, that's like community service. So any younger individuals who had court orders to do reparation as part of their sentencing, I would go along and be one of the appropriate adults there because I started doing it as a bit of a cut because you spend 20 years, I hadn't ever had a job, a proper job in near on 20 years. I had one or two sort of day jobs when I was 16. I got the job for a day, then I left. I was like, you know, why would I do this when I can earn so much more? So I hadn't basically done anything for 20 years other than sell drugs. So I, I thought, what can I do that I don't have to commit to volunteer? And that's what, what I was, did. What, what made you what made you want to leave behind the, the drug dealing? Uh, I didn't want to, I didn't intend on leaving it behind. I just needed a cover up. So I was oh, mentoring okay. these young offenders. Oh, it was a cover. Okay. As a cover. So when, when, if I was stopped and asked what I did, I could produce my ID for the council and say I was a mentor. So that's what I did. So as while I was at the so, council, my manager at the time, there was a chap. He was my, the manager of the borough council, was the most grounded, humble individual you'll ever meet. Or it felt like it to me at the time. So I would go in and I got a little desk, you know, a seat in the offices and I'd have these 375 pound jeans on and he'd come in with just a pair of chinos and a pair of like vans. And then lunchtime, I'd park my convertible or one of my cars in the, in the car park so everyone could see it outside the window. And then he'd cycle to work. And when I'd be sat in the office, Nobody would say say morning to me, really. But he would come in every day and say, hi, Claude, how are you? And I was thinking, what's wrong with this square? You know, there's just, he was ticking at a different time, man. He really was. And uh, he couldn't be influenced. He didn't have, like, my jeans, mate, was more than his whole outfit. Like, but he wasn't impressed. And then eventually we had a team building day where everybody volunteered. At this point, I was became a sessional worker, so I got like a part-time contract, but it still allowed me to work within my hours of availability. And everybody who worked for the council had to go along to this team building day. So we all did. I had to go. I didn't want to. And then um, I, I went along, and we all had to do an icebreaker where you say introduce yourself and say something about yourself that nobody else knows. So, uh, for example, I remember there was this lady who stood up and she said, um, my name's such and such. And what nobody knows is every day after work, I get a bar of chocolate and I eat it on the way home on the bus before I get home. And then, you know, I can't remember what I said. I said something like, my name's Claude and I never, I don't own a watch or whatever. I can't remember what I said. But my whole time, my attention was on the manager. 
not my line manager, the manager of the entire account. So I was like, he's super square. And I want to know what he's going to say. You know, when I get home, I play Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. And just to be clear, that's fine if you do play Dungeons and Dragons, but that's not what he said. He said, hi, my name's such and such. And then he produced a small box out of his pocket. No bigger than the sort of box you'd put a ring in from the jewelers sort of thing. And he opened the box up and he produced a crucifix. And there was maybe, you know, a hundred people in the room sort of thing. And he held the crucifix up and he said, what you don't know about me is I'm a Christian and Jesus changed my life. And Sam, I can't even tell you the rest of what he said, mate. Something struck me right over the head. Cause I was thinking, do you know what, mate? I like, I've, you know, shamefully shotguns, had bags of bags of money, been in knife fights, you name it, mate, I've done it. And I spent my entire life conditioning myself to have this animalistic instinct of no fear. And then this little fella stood up with his chinos on, walked out in front of a hundred people, produced the cross. I don't know if he was scared, but he seemed as cool as a cucumber and announced his faith in Jesus. That was way bigger than anything I could have ever done. And at that point, I still had no idea about Jesus, but I just wanted to know what it is that this man's got his faith in that could, because remember, I'm thinking back in the office, he doesn't, he's got his packed lunch, he's got his bicycle. Mate, outside I had a convertible Audi. Like what? So I, I grabbed him afterwards and I said, I'd love to get to know more about what you said. And he was like, oh, you know, yeah, it's just my belief. And um, he had to rush off. I'll just quickly share this. He had to rush off. And he said he has to catch a train. And I said, I'll give you a lift. And he said, no, it's fine, Claude, honestly. He's such a nice chap. And I said, no, no, I'll give you a lift. And he said, no, no, honestly, Claude. And I said, mate, get in the car. I want to talk. And at that point, I was thinking, forget the, the job, you know, sessional work. If he said, like... And he got in and we drove to the train station. And he suggested I do a thing called an alpha course. And I just wanted to know, mate, I don't know really why I was so drawn in at that moment that I got called. But I just wanted to know what was making this man tick because I'd tried it all. And I, I rushed home and I looked online and there was an alpha course starting the next evening. And I signed up and went along. Amazing. And... Um... What was what was it like? I mean, most will be aware what what happens on Alpha. There's a short talk. There's a discussion. It's an opportunity for Christians to basically explain what we believe, and for other people who aren't Christians to ask their questions. What was your experience like of it? Did you enjoy it? Did you make friends? Was there a moment where suddenly everything clicked into place? How was it for you? Yeah, it was. I went along on the first week, and I just remember yeah, how friendly everybody was like my background you don't say hello to strangers mate like you don't even look them in the face just keep your eyes you know and um everyone said hi you must be Claude boom 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 so I said yeah I'm thinking yeah what's going on here you know everyone's so we have a meal like you said and we watch the talk and same time next week and I thought yeah you know they seem all right you know they're not they're not trying to brainwash me yet 
So I went, I went away, you know, and uh, the week flew by, but throughout the week, I was having different thoughts about these new people I met. And I rushed back. It was on a Tuesday. And I rushed back. And the first week when they greeted me, everyone put their hand out to shake. And I was like, who does that? The president, the prime minister? So the second week I turn up, you know, and I'm striding along. And uh, I put my hand out to the lady to shake it. And she gave me a hug and welcomed me. And mate, I was mind blown. Like, and then I went in and the chap um, gave me a hug and welcomed me. And I just remember thinking, I've never been hugged. I don't even hug my siblings. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the last time I had been hugged before. And I, and I remember thinking, wow, you know the guy, it's one thing the, the lady hugged me, but you know the guy, is how did he do, like, isn't he scared of what people think? Like he's weak, he's hugging someone. Why does he do that, you know? And then I think it was that week that they said, we watched the video, the HTB videos. And I think it's the second week or third week. They say, if you would like to invite Jesus into your life, you can. And uh, that was, I did. I did. What happens next? Sometimes when people pray that prayer, everything changes overnight. And for other people, they say that prayer and life kind of looks the same the next day or week or month, but gradually over time, things change. How, how was it for you? Cause obviously for you, you've, um, you know, your whole social circle, how you're making money, all of these things, you know, to put it mildly, aren't typically the way Christians live their lives. So right. obviously there's, there's quite a lot for you to kind of give up or change or so. Yeah. What were the next steps for you after that moment of praying that prayer? Um, so they said, you know, if you if you want to, you can invite Jesus into your life. And I remember, you know, in a penny, in a pound, mate, I was thinking, I'm, I'm, there's only one person who controls my life, and that's me. So why not? I'll give it a go and see what happens. And I remember I prayed, yeah? And I said, I dare you, Jesus. I dare you to come into my life and do what these people say you can do. You know and that typical show and prove mentality, you know, when you're younger growing up in South London, like, um, and uh, mate, I kid you not, I felt such a presence come over me. And it was almost frightening because it wasn't a scary presence. It was a presence, it was a welcoming presence. And I knew at that moment that I had encountered something and it was real. And I've been through a lot, enough to know in life, yeah? I'm very aware with how I feel. I'm very aware emotionally. And what I felt that day, I'd never felt before. And by the time I opened my eyes, I remember the prayer was so silent. You could almost feel it. You could almost hear the silence. And I opened my eyes and I just knew like, mate, there's more to life. There's more to life. And if, if that be the case, then I'm wasting mine. And uh, I went away that night and I woke up absolutely buzzing I was so, mate, I hadn't been that enthusiastic or happy or joyful for a very long time. Even I didn't know. 
why? And people see a change in me instantly. I was like the happiest drug dealer in the world. It was so weird. And then, you know, I can't remember. I think it was maybe the next day I had a bag of cocaine and I was weighing it up and it was quite a lot of cocaine. And I remember looking down into the bag and for the first time in nearly 20 years, I saw it for what it was. Um, and any other time it was just, it's an object. You know, you put your shoes on and it's just a pair of shoes. You don't look at them for what they are. But I saw the cocaine from what it was. And I, mate, I do not know why. But I said, is this my contribution to society? Is this what I'm offering the world? And uh, obviously by then I was filled, man. I didn't realize it was the spirit at work or the encounter when I prayed. I didn't realize I had had an encounter, but I would just had to. And, and God just kept intervening. And I, and I just said, I've got to stop what I'm doing, bro. I just got to stop this. It's madness. I'm poisoning people. And what's ironic, if I could just jump back for a moment, I met a couple of guys from what, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a group called the National Front. And I, I had to cut some clientele from the National Front and it was really weird. And it's a whole different story for a whole different interview, but they used to call me the poisoner. Um, but it was sort of like a mutual, we'd have a laugh about it. And, you know, they didn't want anything else to do with me other than to buy drugs off of me. And I didn't want anything else to do with them other than to take their money. So they called me the poisoner. I'd laugh, give them, there's your poison. And I'd leave. Fast forward back to the bag of cocaine. I remember thinking, I, I'm, you know, the poisoner. My contribution to the, I'm poisoning the world. People like myself from my background, hard working class individuals were my clientele. Sure, I had by then had one or two celebrities, but most of my gains by the time I was 32, which I was at that age, had come from working class people who couldn't afford drugs. And yeah, it just, that was the change. And, and then by the end of the alpha course, I was so convicted, mate. God was such doing such a work in my life that I just had to confess to the vicar, you know, because that's what you do when you, you confess, you know. And um, I told him, told him. And um, he said, well, Claude, you know, the, the vicar was such a lovely guy and he's still one of my closest friends to this day. He said, well, Claude, you're going to have to stop that and find a job, aren't you? And that was it, mate. That was, like, I, I didn't even need that. But the fact that he said it was just, I said, yeah. And that has just stopped. I never, I switched my phones off. I've never switched them back on. I don't even know where they are now, but I, I had them for years and never switched them back on. And uh, if I can just share, Sam, I know I've gone on a bit, but what is fascinating, mate, is that all of my gains, because people often ask, all of the gains that I ever got, yeah, when you live a very fast life, it costs a lot of money. But any gains I did have, I had to give them up to make my crossover to a legitimate lifestyle. So it's really because the Bible says, I'll bring you back on which the route you came, like a horse with its bit in the mouth. And uh, I love God's faithfulness in his word. And I've walked every step of it. You know, it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it. Amazing. 
Yeah. How, um, how did the change affect your sort of friends and also your family? You know, whether you mentioned turning your phones off. So I'm assuming these were, these were phones where you do drug deals. You've just literally got rid of them. Haven't you say, haven't turned them on since. But I imagine, as I say, this was sort of your social circle, wasn't it? Um, so was it a case of there are people who you've not spoken to in years and you've just sort of said goodbye? Or were there people who, as you say, sort of noticed the change in you and were intrigued by that? How did, how did it work out for you kind of socially? Um, by then, I was, you have a very, I had a very small social circle. Those whom I did I, didn't, I really didn't have any friends. At the peak of my career, I was sleeping in my clothes, sleeping on the top of my bed because I was so paranoid about being raided or robbed. The only time I'd get changed is when I had a shower in the morning, um, unless I was going somewhere during the day. But you're always on your P's and Q's. Nobody knows where you live. And uh, so I had very few people whom I had to burn those bridges with in regards to my social circle. The clients... I switched off the phones and just never saw them again. Um, but what what was interesting is the chap whom I'd got arrested with very early on in life ha- had ended up doing another crime and getting uh, almost a 20-year sentence. And he's, he's in um, prison now. And um, occasionally, some years ago, I can't remember how, but he got my contact details because it just spread like wildfire that I, a lot of my, a lot of my peer group respected my decision. Uh, my, my siblings, my eldest brother, whom I adore, thought I'd gone mad and told me that he thought I was crazy. Um, and him and I are no longer in touch. But I've got a lot of good people around me. So my family whom don't want to see me or aren't seeing me, that's fine. It's hurtful, but it's for the best of, it's for the best. And my peer group's the same. I don't see anybody. Um, the chap who's in prison, I pray for him, you know, and uh, I got a new bunch of friends, a new social circle, a new, a new family, I'm good. Yeah. Incredibly, I understand you're now training for ordination, training to be a vicar. Is that right? So you may incredibly, like you said, God is amazing. He really has done a work in my life. So I ended up working. I had several jobs when I became legit, if you can call that, after encountering Jesus. I had several jobs. I worked as a barista in a coffee branch. Then I worked in a high street food hall. And then I got the opportunity to work at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton, um, where I'd done various jobs starting at the homeless shelter. And I was a verger for a while. And then the opportunity arose after many years of pursuit for me to study theology, where I passed my BAP after going through my discernment process. And I'm now an ordinand on my second year of a two-year course pathway. And I was on a program called the Peter Stream, yep. which headhunts and, and gives opportunities to those who's never had opportunities like this, like myself. 
and um, I'm supported in my studies and it's been it's an unbelievable journey and like I said I'm on my second come September I'll be my second year of my two-year pathway and God willing I'll, I'll, I'll be ordained and uh, become a, a priest in the priesthood incredible well, it's an amazing story of how you say God has completely transformed your life and I know as well the fact that you're um, training to be a vicar is also an incredible answer to prayer for many people who have acknowledged what you've just said about actually you look across not just the church of England, but church in general, who are the church leaders? They tend to be well-educated, tend to be white, tend to be, you know, various categories, more, more middle-class or affluent. And there's been a recognition, I think, for a long time that the church needs to be a lot more broad than that. I imagine you're quite aware of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. To be, I'm on the second year of this cohort, um, in regards to since the Peter stream started um, and to be part of the second term, the second year cohorts is absolute, it's an honor. And I realize um, the importance of the platform I have and it's, you know, it's my story, but it's God's glory. And if anyone may be listening, not just in regards to education and studies, but mate, where there's a will, there's a way. I think God, favors the brave I think he's faithful to our prayers and I'm far from perfect and I don't have the answers trust me and I make mistakes on a daily basis and uh, you just got to lean in and have the faith and to be part of something like the Peter stream um, and studying at St. Melitus like you said the diversity to be championing this it's a huge opportunity, which I'm very thankful for. Well, the new book is Guns to Gods, My Journey from Drug Dealing to Deliverance. Claude Jackson is the author. Thank you so much, Claude, for speaking to me. Just finally then, what are your hopes for this book? You've taken the time to write down your story. We've heard some of it today. There's loads more in the book. Why write this? What's the point? And what is your hopes for people who pick up this book and read it? If somebody didn't tell me about Jesus, I wouldn't know about him. And he saved my life. And I'd love for anybody um, who might be struggling, who might have questions, faith um, surrounding their faith, or just finds themselves in a bit of a pickle. Um, I would encourage everyone who can get the book to buy two copies and give one away. Um, because hopefully someone will read one or something in the book. And you never know, it might change their life. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Claude, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It's been so encouraging to hear all that God has done in your life. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Sam, you're an absolute legend, mate. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine. It features loads of great interviews, including the one you've just heard. We've written up Claude's story for the This Is My Story section of the magazine. We publish a new testimony every single month. And so if you would like to get your hands on Premier Christianity magazine, we've got a fantastic new offer for you. It's just £1 for your first three months in print 
and online access. Or if you're listening to this from further afield, you can get online access for $1. All the details are available right now at Premier Christianity Magazine, so do check that out. And also, final reminder that Claude Jackson's new book is out now, so if you want the full story of how God has transformed his life, do check out From Guns to Gods. It's published by SPCK. If you're listening to this on Premier Christian Radio, then you can get past episodes of The Profile Show on the podcast. So you can just search for premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile and you can listen to past episodes on the go wherever you are. And if you are listening right now as a podcast, we'd so appreciate it if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just take a couple of minutes to give us a rating. We recommend five out of five, but whatever you feel is appropriate and maybe just a short review. It just helps other people to discover the show so we can get stories like Claude Jackson's out to even more people. Thank you so much for your support and we'll see you next time.